Okay, we're going to open it, Esther chapter 3. We've seen the build up to this, but we're looking at Esther um, just for the point of view of the, 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 the way that God has used women. You know, it was a carry on from the study in Romans where Paul had, had uh, singled out many women for their, for their boldness, for their courage for their ability to help and all the church planting and, and all the support that Paul needed and, and that the many churches needed at that time. And you know, some of the, the women in the Bible have been given some of the greatest tasks, and this is one of them, uh, in Esther. Adasa was her name in the Hebrew, Myrtle. Um, Esther was the, the morning star. But she's been queen now. If you want to catch up with the study, it's now up online. But Esther has been queen now for a few years. Indeed, in verse 7 in chapter 3 here, we'll find that we're in the 12th year of Xerxes being the king. So we're now sort of four and a half years from the point where Esther was crowned queen. So we're four and a half years down the line from that, and we're probably eight years down the line from when the book of Esther sort of kicked in in the third year after Xerxes. And we've seen... The situation that God has manoeuvred where he has brought Esther into a position where although in some measure she wouldn't want to go, she has ended up as the queen of Persia. She has ended up as the queen of literally the whole known world. She is, apart from the Greek empire, the Persian was probably the largest empire that the world has ever seen. And so, even although she was, she was taken by in some measure force and brought into this Miss Persia contest and anointed as queen she must have wondered where are you God, why are you doing this to me why have I been stuck with this I wanted to be with Mordecai I wanted just to live a normal life I wanted to meet a good Yiddish boy and just get married and, and have children and go on with it and here I am I'm stuck in the king's harem I'm, I'm never allowed to meet another man except a eunuch and those that look after me. But this was now a number of years later. And I want to encourage you in that because sometimes we think we're in a bind and we think we wonder where God is and what are you doing with me, God? What's happening here? And yet it can be years down the line. It can be a long time down the line before the plan starts to unveil itself. Before we start to see and we look back and we think, oh, that's why that happened. That's why this happened. We see the same thing. So I want to encourage you this morning not to give up in your prayers. Not to give up in the things that, that God may have put in your heart at some point in time. Not to give up in them, but to keep it in prayer. For if God truly has put it in your heart, then it will come to pass. And so we start here at Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at verse 2 and the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, or Haman, whatever way you want to pronounce it, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. We're going to find out, of course, that Haman was a manipulator and a liar. That he was almost in some measure the, the sort of um, the, the picture of the devil in this situation. A, a, a satanically, demonically inspired human being. As we've seen many uh, demonically inspired human beings over the years. 
We don't know why Xerxes honoured Haman in such a fashion. But it could have been that, or it may well have been, and many commentators think it might have been that, very slowly but surely, although it was Mordecai that had uncovered the plot to kill the king in chapter 2 and had put it forward to Esther, that Haman had started to nibble away at it and actually manipulate himself into a position where he had convinced King Xerxes that he was the guy who had actually thwarted the plot to kill him. And that Xerxes wanted to honour him for that and so had seems to have raised him above all the other royal officials. So effectively we could say that, that Xerxes had made him sort of prime minister, if you want to call it that. He was a he was the top dog, he was the top politician. And uh, you know, I was talking to Ian last week after, you know, and politicians, you know, how do you know when a politician's telling you lies? You can see his lips moving. You know, it's uh, it's uh, uh, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, and, uh, if any politician is listening to this in the tape, sue me. You know. Um, but the king had ordered that all these officials should bow down and pay homage to Haman. Now that, that to me was unusual for Xerxes because Xerxes was a total megalomaniac. I mean, he thought he was wonderful and only people should bow down to him. So it, there was obviously something very, very... Um, taken in Haman and, and, and I believe that this was the kind of demonically inspired part of it that Haman in some measure had, uh, had wheedled his way into Xerxes' best books now it says here that Haman was an Agagite now that's easy for me to say um, but an Agagite was an Amalekite it was one of the, the clans of the Amalekite nation or one of the tribes of the Amalekite nation. The Amalekites and the Jews were sworn enemies. Right from the very start, way back in Exodus chapter 17, verses 14 to 16, or in that passage, the passage basically speaks of the fact that when Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, they, they wanted passage uh, and the Amalekites wouldn't give them passage. And so there was a, a, a battle was fought against the Amalekites. And the story tells us that Moses was standing there with his hands in the air. And uh, eventually his hands get tired and they dropped. And when his hands were up, Israel prevailed. And when his hands were down, the Amalekites prevailed. And so Aaron and Hur came along and sat him on a stone and held up his arms. And really what... The whole thing is that for a Jewish man to pray, he stands like this. So Moses was praying over the whole situation. And when his hands fell and his prayer stopped, the Amalekites started to overcome the Israelites. But God basically put a, 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 an edict in force there that the Amalekites would be destroyed for the face of the earth. There would be none left. And we find that in 1 Samuel 15 when Saul was king of Israel he was the first king of Israel he had to go and fight the Amalekites and Samuel the prophet told him now when you go and fight these Amalekites you have to kill them all I mean we talk about you know the Old Testament being pretty gory and we wonder why does God ask for people to be completely annihilated in fact it was to the point where not only were the men, women and children to be annihilated but all the flocks and herds, the sheep, the lot the whole lot had to be wiped out and Saul didn't do it Samuel came to him 
And he said, you've disobeyed the Lord. And he said, no, no, no. He says, I did all the Lord has told me. I killed all the guys and I killed all the sheep. And uh, He says, what, what do I hear? He says, I'm hearing the bleating of sheep and the, the, the lowing of cattle. I mean, what, what is going on, Saul? I will. We just kept them to offer unto the Lord. That was, uh, that was his excuse. And, and we captured the king, Agagite. Agag. The Agagite. <laughs> It's worse, doesn't it? And that was the problem here. Here was the a way back in the time of Saul, hundreds of years before the situation with Esther. God had wanted the Amalekites wiped out because He knew that out of the Amalekites would come trouble in later years. And when Saul didn't do it, some of the Agagites, some of the Amalekites escaped, and Haman was one of the descendants of these Amalekites that escaped, and here he is. He's popped up again, the enemy of the Lord. And in and, and, and 1 Samuel 15, verse 20 and 21, Saul said to Samuel, But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of that was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. You know, sometimes people wrap up their wrongdoing in godliness and, and pretend that it's something holy that they've done. And Saul was no different. And we need to be careful that we don't do that. I'm quite, you know, people talk about a revival in these end times. And I'm quite sure there will be a revival in these end times. But you know, I think it's going to be an apostasy wrapped up as a revival. I think it's going to be something ungodly that we're going to be asked to accept because it looks the part. Saul had all the right excuses, all the right reasons, but Samuel, being the man of God, he could see through it. So stick to the word. The word says that in the last days the hearts of many will grow cold. The word says that in the last times many scoffers will come. So be careful. I'm not saying that that's absolute, but I believe that there will be some form of revival but I think honestly it will be some sort of apostasy wrapped up as a revival then the royal officials in verse uh, Esther chapter 3 verse 3 then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai why do you disobey the king's command day after day they spoke to him but he refused to comply therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew so Mordecai will not bow down. We don't know why he won't bow down, but we presume that it's because he's an Agagite, he's an Amalekite. Um, either that or, or Mordecai knows something about Haman or, or is well aware that he was the guy that foiled the plot to kill King Xerxes and that Mordecai has, has sort of stolen his thunder, if you want to call it that. We have to be careful. The royal officials had asked him day after day, you know, if we're bound down to him, why are you not bound down to him? And, and eventually they sort of shopped him to Haman. And uh, we have to be careful that there are people in positions in our country and in our land here who we may not like, particularly some of the politicians. And I've always got to remind myself that we need to pay respect to the office that they hold and not to the person that holds it. If we pray for the office that... that, that the men hold then then we're praying for a good thing um, if we start to hold grudges and, and start to, to uh, literally to hate the people that are in office then we do ourselves no favours as Christians 
We need to pray for our enemies. These, these are the people that, that Jesus has asked us to pray for. So when Haman saw at verse 5 that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. It's slightly worded differently in some of the other, the, the other translations, but that's basically the... He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, being an Amalekite, this would be a good plan. Sworn enemies of the Jews... Uh, this would be a good plan. Let's wipe them out. Let's not just settle for Mordecai. This is what comes when we start to really get a bitterness in our soul about somebody. And we need to be careful. And I, I have to be careful as well in the current situation in Israel and Gaza. You know, although I support Israel and I support them in what they do, I've got to remember that they're no saved people either. Very few of them are. And the, and the Palestinians, very few of them are. So they're knocking seven bells at each other at the moment. And, you know, it's a desperate situation. And it's one that only Christ can, can resolve. But because, because I believe in, in, the, in the biblical prophecy concerning Israel, it, it's easy to get caught up in the whole, the whole idea of it and, and to demonize the, the Palestinian side of it. And uh, we have to be careful. We need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray for those that hate us and abuse us and, and, and would speak wrongly of us. And there's a lot going on. I know there's a lot going on in these situations that, that is not right. There's certainly um, all these tunnels that have been built and all these rockets that have been fired. It's not right. But we need to be careful. Vengeance is a hard taskmaster. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay so we have to be careful that we pray for those that we love and we pray for those that would hate us. Help us not to hate. This is what happens. This is what happens. Here we are in a situation that happens that Haman hates the Jews. And Mordecai doesn't have much regard for Haman either. And so we get this clash. So we have to be careful. The vindictive nature of Haman shows here he's not content just to kill one Jew. He wants to kill them all. The guy is proudful, he's insecure, and vengeance has got hold of his heart. But you see, in some measure God knew what Haman's heart was, and he gave him over to the desires of his heart. You know, we, we, we see in the Bible, and we read in the Bible, that God will give us the desires of our heart. And we think, well, that's a great thing. You know, and we think it's all wonderful. But if the desire in your heart is wrong, believe me, God will hand you over to that delusion. He will give you what you want. Romans 1, we looked at that in Romans chapter 1. That people who were, who were sexually immoral and people who were, were molesters and, and child molesters and all the rest of it, God gave them over to that delusion and they thought that what they were doing was right. So we need to be careful. The same things happen to Haman here. If you get that hatred in your heart, just one of these days God might give you over to it. He did the same with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh had no regard for the Hebrew people in Egypt. He had no regard for their welfare. In fact, he disdained them. And God used that. He used Pharaoh's disdain to bring about a deliverance for Israel. And I'm sure here he's going to use Haman's disdain to bring about a deliverance for Israel. And I'm sure that 
even in the present day situation the Palestinian disdain for Israel God will use to bring about a deliverance for Israel again because that's the way God is he sticks to his word in the twelfth year at verse 7 of King Xerxes in the first month, the month of Nisan the poor, that is the lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month and the lot fell on the the twelfth month the month of Adar so we find here that Haman is superstitious as well. Literally, what they're doing is they're, they're rolling dice. I mean, that, that's kind of basically what it is. The poor was another sort of... It was a Persian name for the lot. So you cast the lot and you see what it said. And it was a, it was a Persian superstitious thing, like throwing the dice. So they threw it in the first month in Nisan and the... And the the lot fell on, on the twelfth month. So there was eleven months from they threw the poor to the destruction of the Jews. That was when they were going to ask for the destruction of the Jews. And God will use this again. God will use this delusion, this superstition to bring about the deliverance for Israel. Indeed, in Proverbs 16 and verse 33 it says, The law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. No matter what you do to try and thwart God's plans, God will use whatever you use to bring about His will. It doesn't matter. God is sovereign over all, and He will watch over His plan and make sure His plan comes to the fore. And so, in all of this, we see God's hand never mentioned well, never mentioned about prayer, never mentioned anything. The hand of God, the word of God, the name of God, never mentioned. And yet here he is, manoeuvring things around. Using the attitudes of people's hearts to bring about his own design. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give ten thousand talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. And here we find with Haman, this is the most heinous and most dangerous accusation you can ever come across in your life. It's a half-truth. And the one that's really good at it is Satan. He'll always present you with a half-truth. He'll always tell you a bit of the truth and then pin his lie on the end of it. And you think, well, if the first part's true, the second part should be true as well. Yeah, the Jews were a people that were dispersed in the land. And they had their own laws and their customs. But there was nothing that they were doing or saying that would stop them from obeying the king's law. And yet Haman had convinced Xerxes that they were. Now, the money that Haman offered, Haman actually offered the king a bribe. I'll put 10,000 talents of silver in your treasury if you let me go ahead with this destruction of these Jewish people. Now, in modern terms, 10,000 talents, a talents was, was 75 pounds weight, which is a lot. And we're talking silver here. In today's terms, uh, silver's currently running about $20 an ounce. So you, sorry, £12 an ounce. Well, 20 American dollars, 20 US dollars. $240 million 
It's what Haman, in today's terms, would have put into the. And silver was even more expensive then. It was a, it was a rarer commodity then than it is today. So this guy was prepared to pay King Xerxes $250 million. How much was he getting for himself? And where was he getting the money from? The money Haman offered would not come from his pocket. It would come from the pocket of the slain Jews, of the slaughtered Jews, the millions of them that would be spread out throughout the Persian Empire. So what share would Haman have in it? He was, this was not only a, a way of getting rid of the Jews, but it was a real money-making scam as well. So the king, at verse 10, took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. I don't know where the king's head was at this point in time. I don't think he actually realised what he was doing. But to hand over, I mean, the, the, the signet ring was the symbol of power and authority for a king. And to just glibly hand it over to, to this Haman either was a great trust that he had in Haman or the king it was a total folly that he had done here maybe the king thought it was just a few revolutionaries that were scudding around in his empire and it would be an easy way to get rid of them but to hand this ring over I mean this was this really was the power and authority if you wrote an edict and signed it Xerxes people might not accept it but if you folded it up and waxed it and put the ring on it Everybody had to accept it. That was the king's seal. And that's what was handed back to, to Haman. If you remember back in the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son finally returned to his father and his father brought him in and he put a coat upon him. And that was, again, what we talked about. The workers wore sleeveless coats, but the son of the father, he wore a coat with sleeves. And So the father put a coat with sleeves on him and put shoes on his feet. The slaves and the workers never wore shoes, but the son did. And he took the ring from his finger and put it on his finger. He gave him the power and authority of the household. So it was a, it was a big thing, this, this uh, handing over of the ring. So, at verse 12... On the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned and they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews. So we're not just happy with destroying and killing them if they annihilate them. I mean, it's just a... Young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. This is like every other attack on the Jewish nation over the years, over the millennia, if you want to call it that. It's totally irrational. There is no logical reasoning behind it. It's totally demonically inspired. It's, I mean, there just is a demonically inspired hatred for the Jews. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. There are people who hate the Jews. So why such a determination to eradicate the Jews? This is not... You know, Paul tells us, your enemy is not flesh and blood, your enemy is the powers, the principalities. The, and that's exactly true, and that's what's happening here. In the Old Testament, Satan was determined to wipe out the Jews. 
Because if he wiped out the Jews, salvation could not come from Zion. If there were no Jews, there would be no Mashiach, there would be no Messiah. And in these days, these New Testament days, after Jesus has died, the target is the Jews and the Christian church, the born-again believers, the true believers. Because Jesus is coming back for his church, and he's also coming back to redeem the Jews as well at some point in time. Soon, I hope. So if there is no church, and there are no Jews, there's no point in Jesus coming back. So this here is a determination by Satan to wipe out the Jews on the basis that if I can wipe out the Jews there is no redemption can come out of Zion. So the couriers went out spurred on by the king's command at verse 15 and the edict was issued in the citadel of Shushan or Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Shushan was bewildered. They were perplexed in Shushan or because the Jews, the, the Jews that they knew within the city, they were hard-working, honest and good neighbours. Can you imagine the same thing happening to us as Scots? I mean, we go around the world and everybody loves the Scots. We, have a, we seem to have a good name. There's been a lot of people through the sort of emigrations all over the world that they're Scottish everywhere. But can you imagine the situation that these Jewish people are in? That no matter where you went, people hated you and were ready to kill you. Then no matter, I just can't imagine it for the Scots. I can't imagine it for any other, any other ethnic group on earth that somebody wants to totally annihilate them. It's irrational. It's irrational unless you look at the reasons behind it. That without the Jewish people, there will be no Messiah. Or without the Jewish people, there will be no salvation for the Jews. And all this came to pass because of one powerful man's wounded pride. And so we step into chapter 4 here. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on the sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing many lay in sackcloth and ashes do you notice even here even when Mordecai finds out and even when the edict is put out into the, into the provinces there's never any mention of prayer or God but there's fasting there now no matter where you look in the Bible fasting and praying always go together and yet it's missed out here we presume that the people are calling upon the Lord. Mordecai was totally anguished by this. Now he was a royal official. He was one of the king's royal officials. And he would come up to the king's gate, up to the palace gate, and would normally be allowed to go in and sit at the gate and wait for maybe to hear people's petitions or whatever, or make appointments or whatever. But here he was, in front of all the king's royal officials, at the king's gate, in sackcloth and ashes, wailing and crying and and making a proper spectacle of himself, throwing dust in the air, and, and, and just totally distraught. And yet, although he was in that situation, it was his integrity that caused it. It was his making a stand that has caused the problem. And he must have wondered, God, where are you? I did the right thing. 
I stood up against Haman. I wouldn't bow down to Haman. And yet look what's happened. Look what my actions have brought. I've not just brought disaster upon me. I've brought disaster upon your whole people. Lord, what's happening here? And sometimes we find that in our own lives. We find that we make a stand for Christ. And it not just, just doesn't affect us. It affects other people around us. And we fall out with bosses or bosses get a, a wrong idea as to who we are and we think, gosh, I've made this worse for everybody. But I'll tell you this, if you make a stand for the Lord, it will never be worse than it was before. God will always come to your rescue. So Mordecai decided, I'm not changing my mind, I'm not going to go and grovel to Haman. Haman has set this plan in place because at the end of the day, that was the way his heart was. I honestly believe that even if Mordecai had gone and kissed his feet at this point in time, Haman would have said, you're too late. I've made up my mind, you're finished. I'm going to sort you out. And of course, you know, Mordecai knew that once this edict was issued, it was irrevocable. Once the king of Persia, once the seal had been put on it by Haman, it was written in the king's name. The king knew virtually nothing about it, but the king's seal was on it, and so it was irrevocable. And so at verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Esther's sitting in the king's harem, totally oblivious to what's going on. In total ignorance, she tries to clothe Mordecai. You know, sort, sort yourself out. It can't be that bad. Esther knew Mordecai too well, in some measure, for this to be just a small matter. You know, she knew there was something big going on here for Mordecai to behave like this. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Shushan, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Esther had no idea what was going on until it was explained to her. Here we come again with the situation in regards to women. The affairs of state were no place for a woman in, in this environment. And even today, in many of the Arab countries, in many of the Southeast Asian countries, there's no place for women. They're, they're, they're very much kept. There are one or two who come to the front, I'll admit that, but in the main, I say this many times. It's Christ who set, has set women free. It's Christ who has given them that place in society, that equality that they should have and, 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 and be blessed in it. So Hathak at verse 9 went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So you can even see here in a situation where it's not exactly she's queen, but it's not exactly an intimate relationship she's got with Xerxes. I mean, she hasn't seen him for a month, uh, let alone spoken to him. So she's in this situation, you know, it's, 
And it, she says, you know, Mordecai, you know the rules as well as I do. You know the law. If I just turn up in the king's presence, they could kill me. I mean, the kings were paranoid. We've said this already, you know, that they were always on the lookout for somebody trying to kill them. And, of course, the easiest way to do it was just to barge into his presence and, and maybe suddenly produce a weapon or something and kill him. So to... To actually appear before the king, you had to have an appointment. And if you didn't have an appointment, you were in big trouble. You were going to die. So Esther's life was on the line. Mordecai had put it to her. You're in a position. You're in a position to sort this. You're in a position to stand for your people. You're in a position to make that stand. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, verse 12, he sent back this answer. And this is, to me, this is one of my favourite bits out of the Bible. One of the, the great statements. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai had total and absolute confidence in God. I believe, Esther, that you've been put in this position. That you're the one. You're the chosen one. You're going to go and and get deliverance for your Jewish people. But I'll tell you this. Don't worry about it. If you don't want to do it, don't. God will find a deliverance from another direction. But I still believe that God knew Esther's heart. God knew that she was a courageous young woman. I mean, at this stage, she's only maybe 24 years of age. So don't let anyone put you off because of your age. And what I would say to you is, you find yourselves in this position. Where are you now? Where are you today? You're sitting here. You're working. You're ministering. You're being a Christian in this area. Don't be going looking to serve God somewhere else unless that's specifically where he calls you be like Esther serve him here because if if you don't want to serve him here then God will find somebody else to do it just the same as what he says here God's plan will not be thwarted his will will not be put away no matter of good or evil that men think they do will be able to thwart the plan of God God will return to take his church to glory God will return and redeem the Jews. That is a race and certainty. For such a time as this. That's why you're here. That's why you've been born in this generation. For such a time as this. You're here in a time of unprecedented trouble. There isn't a place in the world. Or there's hardly a place in the world you can go now. There isn't problems. Where can you go that's safe? Even here. In this country. You can have any opinion you like as long as it's no a Christian opinion. For such a time as this, that's why you're here. It may sound scary, it may be difficult, but that's why God has put you here. Do you trust him to take you through this? You know, at the end of the day, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews who are in Shushan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even although it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
It's interesting here that she asked him to go and fast. But you know, the implication, if you said to a Jew, I want you to go and fast, he would immediately think of prayer. He would immediately think, this is, you wouldn't need to say, you have to pray as well. Fasting and praying and the Jewish tradition go together. And in some measure should go together in the Christian tradition as well. When we have that problem before the Lord, it's sometimes good to show God that you're prepared to give up the physical to appreciate the spiritual. So fasting and prayer is a good thing. And it's interesting here that Esther says, I and my attendants will fast also. So there's not only not only her as a Jew fasting, but there's her pagan attendants who are fasting as well. Not because they know the Lord, but because they want to support Esther. So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. Esther decides not to do this alone, but be supported by her Jewish brethren and her pagan attendants. What does it matter? In some measure. I mean I know that we cling on to life here. But what does it matter. If we lose our life for Christ's sake. You know. Paul said it. To be absent from the body. Is to be present with Christ. Heaven is going to be so good guys. It's going to be so good. I can't even describe it. But if you really knew how good it was. I reckon we'd be jumping out of windies to get into it. I mean, there's going to be such a difference between what's here and what's there. I mean, as you progress in your Christian life or as you come to know Christ as Lord and Saviour, who wants to live here? Look at the place. It's a midden. Everybody's knocking lumps at each other. I mean, the, the, the humanists and, and the New Agers and all these other people will tell you that there's good in every man. No, there isn't. The only good that's in us is that which God has put there. You only need to look at the way that we treat each other. Mm, there's wars everywhere. And what did Jesus say? He says, I can't tell you when the exact day it will be. He says, but you know that when you look at the sky at night and you see a red sky, you know it's going to be a good day in the morning. He says, well look for the signs. When you see wars and rumours of wars, when you see disasters and, and things that are uncommon, don't be afraid. For these are only the birth pangs. But the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a paraphrase of it, but that's basically what Jesus was saying. So don't worry that the world's going to hell in a handcart. All we can do is rescue those who want to be rescued. You can't bring anybody to salvation unless they're drawn by the Lord. And that's what we should pray for. Pray for our neighbours, pray for our enemies. Pray for those who despise us and hate us. So if we lose our life in Christ's cause, our souls will live with him forever. So let's give a great deal of thought and prayer to what Jesus would have us do. This is your missionary field. This is the place where God has put you for such a time as this. For those that would be saved on a daily basis, are we as the Christians, the true believers prepared to stand as Esther did to put her life on the line remember when we did the study in Romans as well Priscilla and Aquila were credited with putting their life on the line for Paul and for Christ at one point in time and Paul himself I mean 
What was it we said? He was beaten five times and caned three times and left for dead on numerous occasions and yet he stood up and got on with it. He made a stand. And that's what Christians have to do today. We have to be the people like Esther and we'll find out exactly what happens with Esther's stand. That God would honour what you do. Don't worry that that the immediacy of what you do might cause problems as, as Mordecai found out. God will use it to bring about his good, perfect will. Let's pray. Lord, we realise there's a harvest out there. We realise that there are people out there, Lord, who we think could never be saved. Who we think are so far from you that there's no point in talking to them, Lord. And yet we know, Lord, that if you touch their hearts, they'll get saved, Father. Lord, the harvest is ripe. The workers are few, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to send more workers into the harvest field. Help us to be that people, Lord, who chase down, who look after the people that are nova in ice, the people that don't particularly like us, the people who, Lord, who would judge us and disdain us and call us all manner of things for your sake. Lord, help us to be a people that pray for these. These people who are lost in their sin, Lord, because we were lost in our sin and you found us, Lord. Father, I can't thank you enough for what you've done in my life, Lord. How you've taken me from being an obnoxious, horrible creature and made me something better, Lord. So, Father, inspire us today. Encourage us, Lord. Even although the enemy's beaten on our door, Lord, help us to make that stand. Help us to put our life on the line for you, that you might honour us in due course. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.